short series of the book of Ruth. And the question we've had from the beginning of this short story is what portrait is God painting in the midst of a wicked landscape? And then for us, as we meditate on the story, what portrait is God painting in our own lives in the landscape we find ourselves in? So for a moment, I want you to do this. This actually would have been a good doodle Sunday, Sunday. Um, but I want you to think of this. Think of your life and like, what would be the painting of my life? If I had to think of my life, what would that painting, what would it look like? Maybe it would look like um, Jackson Pollock drips and splatters. Maybe it would look like Picasso's later works and the horror of it. Maybe it would be kind of psychedelic, like an Andy Warhol work from the 1960s. Some of you lived through the 60s and 70s. Uh, maybe it would be Basquiat's rawness. But I think for all of us, we would say, as Francis Schaeffer called us, it would be glorious ruins, glorious, made in the image of God, but ruined by the brokenness of the world and our own sin. So what's the picture of your life? What does it look like? Well, I want to show you um, just a couple of pictures, if we can get those up on the screen, maybe. Some of you, I don't know if you'll be able to see those from the back. Those up front, you can. This is circa 2012-ish. The top portion was dri uh, drawn by my daughter, Kiana. So she would have been about two. The bottom one was drawn by my daughter, Lauren, when she was maybe 11 or so, and I think that that picture in 2012 was pretty representative of our family's life. It was kind of messy at that time. Um, there was there's no real immediate context here, but as you look at this picture, if we were being like art critics, we would say, I, "Yeah, I don't know. It's animalistic. Was that is that the way you would describe it? It's confusing. Um, there's a bee, maybe." With, with legs, like a giraffe. And then there's two people, I think, on the top one. One of them is me with more hair. And then uh, Kiana, I think. Um, and, and if you would ask me, like, is this picture, is it beautiful? Now, if this were hanging in the Philadelphia Art Museum and it was um, drawn by Cy Twombly or some contemporary artist, I would say, no, not really. If one of your kids brought a picture that they had drawn to me, on Sunday morning and said, Pastor Tucker, look what, look what I drew. I would like a la Seinfeld say, oh, it's breathtaking, right? But is it beautiful? Is it beautiful? Um, we'll come back to these pictures a little bit later on. But let, let's, let's come to Ruth. Ruth's miniature in the midst of the judge's landscape. And if you remember the start of the story, Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi come from Moab back to Naomi's hometown, Bethlehem, because of famine in the land. And maybe in Bethlehem, there will be somebody who lives out the commands of God and will provide for us, care for us, live out the, in obedience to God the beauty of his law in providing for the poor and the sojourner. But in this landscape of the judges, a time when everyone did as he or she saw fit, there was Difficulty, pain, uncertainty. And yet, what Autumn just read from Ruth chapter 4, this story ends with beauty. Beautiful. A child is born. 
And, and this family is provided for by Boaz, this husband of Ruth. There's beauty. Now imagine, if you were here for Ruth 1, or if you're familiar with the story, imagine Naomi trying to settle her heart on what could be and, and this story ending with the beautiful birth of a child and the provision for her family. Think of Naomi trying to settle her heart on that in the moment. There's been death, poverty. She's returned to Bethlehem empty. She says, my name is no longer Naomi. It's Mara. It's bitter. Think of all the setbacks, the smudges, the coloring outside the lines. That's how chapter one ends. And we go into chapter two, and there's this inkling of hope because we're introduced to this character, Boaz, a distant relative. He appears on the scene, and he's just an old guy, so there's uncertainty of how he can help. What's going to happen is ultimately still the question to these two women. Will they be cared for? And then in chapter 3, which we didn't read, but we're going to be talking about a little bit, in verse 4, Naomi, as a matchmaker, plans this risky move of having Ruth ask Boaz, who she's met, and been in his field and gleaned some of his crops, ask Boaz to marry her. It's like we've just entered into chick flick territory, and there's another problem then that enters in, in chapter 3. There's another person who actually has closer redeemer rights, who has the rights to buy the land ahead of Boaz and take the hand of Ruth in marriage. What's going to happen to these women? And in verse 18 of chapter 3, Ruth is told to wait. See what Boaz does. Again, uncertainty, chaos, confusion. What's going to happen? Well, at Naomi's behest again, Ruth asks Boaz to marry her. And we see that she uses these expressions, cover me. She dolls herself up and she goes to lay at his feet in the middle of the night. And some have suggested that there was a sort of sexual innuendo going on here with this cover me and lying at his feet in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, 7, 8, 9, and, and 14. But I don't think, and I, a number of scholars would say this, and I agree with them, I don't think that fits contextually with the wholesomeness of the story to say, yeah, there's something kind of sinister, it's a Tinder date. It, it's, I don't think that's what's happening. I think what cover me means is simply, would you marry me? And then we see the faithfulness of Boaz. Yeah. I will I'll marry you. I'll cover you. And then chapter four of Ruth starts with Boaz doing just that. He's starting this process. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take care of Ruth and her family. Boaz said, I'll do it. And immediately the text shows him doing it. He's at the gate of the city hall um, to do this important business. And he waits there for this near kinsman redeemer, the next in line, the one who has the right to purchase the property of Naomi and be the one who marries Ruth for the future legacy of Ruth's husband, Malon. And Boaz keeps his word. He may not even be able to marry Ruth, this one who he actually has some affection for. He may not be able to marry her. There's this nearer kinsman redeemer, but he's still going to make sure that she's cared for, whether it's me or him. I'll provide for you. I'll care for you. I'll make sure that you're covered. And when you see fidelity 
in God's people. When you see faithfulness in God's people, that's a fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ loves the vulnerable and the oppressed. So we would say, yeah, Boaz, just as we had indicated in in chapter 2, Boaz is a good man. He's caring for this one who's right in front of him. There's probably other options. Yeah, he's an older guy, but he's rich. He's got land. And he's going to care for this woman who's right in front of him. And he knows their story. I think that can be one of the most challenging things for us. Loving the person right in front of us. I I spent five years at the University of Pennsylvania working with students. And I, I got nervous in working with these students where they would have this immense pressure put on them. And not just at Penn, but every college. Make a difference. Impact the world. Change the world. Ambition can't wait. My son is at, at Drexel. And, and, and it, we, we hear those things. Make an impact. Change the world. And we're like, well, yeah, I see a broken world around me and there's people that are hurting. And I guess I, I can try to do that. But man, oh man. I think it's almost just as hard on a smaller scale. How about loving the person right in front of you? How about loving the person in your family that next to you on the train, in your neighborhood, that's hard enough to do. This is what Boaz was doing. And so with Boaz, there's hope. Okay, but what do we do about the tension, right? It, we still would like to see this end well, and, and Boaz and Ruth marry, but he may not be able to marry her. There's this other. The painting is still messy, So Boaz takes it upon himself to go to the city gate and look for this kinsman redeemer and convenes a meeting. Boaz asks this closer relative, are you going to redeem the land? And the relative says, yeah, I'll redeem it. Because it involves the land, it's a pretty good deal. More land is good and he can add to his property and renown and inheritance. It's in his best interest to do so. But Boaz says in verse 5 of chapter 4, it also involves this Moabite woman, right? This poverty-stricken Moabite woman. You know that comes, it's a part of the deal. It's a package deal. And and think of this nearer kinsman redeemer. He hears that and he's like, uh, no. And I I think it is dramatic enough that we're supposed to, as the readers, as faithful readers, we look at that and they're like, yeah, I'm a little bit sympathetic to this near kinsman redeemer. And think of it this way. Think that a single friend uh, being told by his friends, we've got a girl we want to set you up with. Um, She's really a lot of fun. She's part of this radical sun god jihadist cult cell, but she's got a great personality. She's going to be really, really a a hoot on a date. And and so your friend is going to say, no, that's that's crazy. I'm not going to do that. This god this near kinsman, like Moabite woman? No, that's an enemy, an arch enemy of the people of Israel. And, and a poverty stricken, and, and I actually have to take her husband's name, it's tied to this land? Uh, no thanks. The way of the flesh wants to protect self, right? I, I can relate to that. Manage risk, avoid obstacles, keep security. I'll take the land, but she doesn't do me any good. As a matter of fact, she's a bit of a liability. She'll impair my inheritance. I'll have one more mouth to feed. So in self-interest, no. 
Marcella and my wife, Marcella and I, we have um, some friends, Zach and Caroline. They live now in Georgia. They used to live up in the Northeast. And um, they were pregnant with, Caroline was pregnant with uh, twins. They were super excited, went in for an ultrasound and um, so somewhere along the way in the pregnancy. And they were told that um, this child, um, there's some, something uh, abnormalities here. I think you might have a child born with Down syndrome. We just want you to be really aware of this. And so if, you know, it's an, you can terminate the pregnancy, this child will, will affect your way of life. It should be a liability. Zach and Caroline, no, what, what are you talking about? You're saying she may not be a blessing, to, but, but we want to be a blessing to her. We want to bless her, and she is going to be a blessing to us. Maybe you think of a family member who has Alzheimer's. Listen, when I go visit, they don't really even know I'm there. They don't remember what we talked about. Yeah, maybe not a blessing to you, but you going, it's a blessing to them. Boaz sees a blessing. He sees a blessing. He sees what this other near kinsman redeemer can't see. And, and notice what happens here. This other guy, this kinsman redeemer, he wants to protect, some, to protect himself. He wants to keep his legacy going, his name going. And if he takes Ruth as his bride, then Malon's line survives and not his as it's tied to this land. But, but here's the irony this cat is not even named. He's called the Redeemer, but he doesn't even do that. Everybody in this story has a name. Dead people are named. This guy doesn't have a name. He's forgotten. But this Moabite widow has a name that is so renowned and famous that thousands of years later and across the ocean and a couple of continents, we're gathered together to talk about Ruth, and five bazillion years from now in eternity, God's word will stand forever. We'll still be talking about Ruth. Why? Because through her family line comes the Christ. She is Jesus' great, great, great grandma and always will be. God paints Christ into Ruth's story, this Moabite, poverty-stricken woman. So friends, this book, this story, is about Jesus. Jesus told his disciples that everything in scripture is about him, John 5, 39. It's all about Christ. So the story of Ruth, it's not like a little precursor to a Jane Austen novel. It is about Jesus. It's a prequel to Jesus. And something here is showing us and getting us ready to anticipate what Jesus is like, what the gospel is like. It's right here in Ruth. Boaz says, I'm going to take her as my wife. And the elders then at the end of the chapter give a blessing. They say, may she, may Ruth be like Rachel and Leah. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Verse 12. Whom Tamar bore to Judah. That sounds like a sweet story, unless you know the story of Tamar and Judah from Genesis 38. 
a woman whose husband dies and thinks that um, she's going to die alone and her future is gone. So she takes it upon herself to dress like a prostitute, seduce her uh, father-in-law uh, uh, that he would impregnate her. That's the story that they're giving the blessing for. And they're saying this, even as God has taken all of that ugliness and brokenness and hardship and through it brought hope, may God do through you the same thing. And friends, remember where this has all taken place. Bethlehem, where years later another rejected desperate young woman with no husband is taken in by a man who seemed to be ruining his life. And in a cave in Bethlehem, one is born of her who will take our burden upon himself. This story leads to Jesus. God works that out in a story in Ruth that it seems really hard to see those first couple of chapters. I think maybe some, some of us this morning are like, man, I'm, I'm in the midst of this uncertainty. The painting that I envisioned, it was not, it was not pretty. Some this morning may have submerged and hidden sin. And if it would be broadcast to anybody, you'd be so ashamed some are suffering because of the sins of others against them. You feel so much brokenness and hurt. But what Ruth shows us is that in all of history, Christ is redeeming. Even as Boaz redeems Ruth, and he's redeeming to paint something beautiful, even when it's really hard to see. Um, I think, friends, that it's important for us to remember when we, we're not there yet, we're not at Advent yet, but we're close, dangerously close. We read at the end of Ruth 4, this genealogy. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. We read the rest of this genealogy in Matthew 1. To Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. In the wonderful compassion of God, he raises up the lowly and despised and makes something glorious. And Christ is doing that even now in you, you who belong to Jesus through faith. You may not see it. The flesh would indicate, no, it's not happening. My life is a disaster. You have no idea, Tucker, my life is a disaster. God takes even the most broken, the most hurt, the most desperate, and brings beauty out of it. All right, I want to show you one last picture. If we can put this picture up on the screen. This is like a huge bonus question. If anybody knows what this picture is, some of you have probably seen it. Shout it out if you know what it is. Where, shout it out if you know where it's at. Well done. Whoever said Sistine Chapel. Good job, Mary Kay. Good job. You get a 
thousand bonus points for that. Um, yeah, the Sistine Chapel is painted by Michelangelo. It's Ruth, Obed, and Salmon. And you're like, well, why is Salmon in there? It's tying the line of um, Moses to Christ. Salmon was in the genealogy. And we would say it's beauty, right? It's a masterpiece. This is a masterpiece by Michelangelo. Well, he, here's something. If you didn't believe what I said just a second ago about God taking, even if your life is a mess and turning it into something beautiful, Ephesians 2.10 says that you are God's handiwork, God's masterpiece. That Greek word is poema, God's poem that he's writing, drawing, painting as we speak, where he takes all the hurts and all the hardships and somehow makes them beautiful, creates beauty out of them. So we can say, and I'm going to invoke my only Lord of the Rings reference today, at some point, maybe not in this life, but in eternal life, we can say, as Samwise Gamgee did, you're making all the sad things come untrue. Friends, I want to leave you just with application. What do I, what do, I do with this, all this? Um, believe the gospel, yeah. But I want, I want us to think about it this way. Share the painting of the gospel with somebody this week. Share your story. The painting and all the, the drips and splatters and the coloring outside the line. Share that with somebody. I had a friend who said, when you do that, it's like you're drawing a picture for God to put up on his cosmic refrigerator. I'm doing that. I want to share the story. And, and when you do it, it's probably going to look, I don't know if we can put those two pictures up together, it's probably going to look more like my daughter's pictures, circa 2012, than the Sistine Chapel. But I'm going to tell you this. Compared between those two, which one do you think I, which one is more beautiful in this dad's eyes? The girls. Is the girl's father who loves them. Find it exponentially more beautiful. John Calvin wrote that this world is the theater of God's glory. Friends, if God is directing the story, it will end in beauty for those who are his. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you take, um, even this very moment, those things that would come to mind or have come to mind the last few minutes, the hurt, the pain, the sin, the shame, the guilt, the sadness, the grief, the despair even. And God, would you bring hope that, Lord, you, the sovereign God over all creation, over the universe, can somehow, in some way, in ways that we can scarcely even fathom, you will turn that to beauty. God, do this for the sake of your glory and our joy. Would you, the God of hope, fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would be a people who abounds in hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.